Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here. I'm looking out of the window in Wiltshire where it's windy and it's pouring with rain. Hello, it's Richard Heller in south-east London, where it's grey, anticipating the rain that always seems to come in from your part of the world. And I just thought I'd mention that today is, when we're recording, is the anniversary of the brilliant last wicket stand, which won um, Pakistan a notable test match in 1994 in Karachi against Australia. And it might be a good time to wish the best of health and a speedy recovery to... One of the main participants in that stand, Inzamam Ulhaq, who's now recovering from heart surgery. Do you remember we went and interviewed um, Inzi in uh, in Lahore uh, a few we years did. ago, Richard? Um, we, it was a memorable interview in a very, very beautiful house. In the posh part of Lahore, yeah. He wasn't exactly a chatty corner, was he? <laughs> no, he wasn't. <laughs> uh, his answers are really quite taciturn, yeah. Delightful reminiscence, but it's really time to get on to introduce our guest, uh, particularly because he's a guest who thrills us both uh, to have him on the podcast. One of the most incisive, independent-minded, really radical cricket journalists of the day. Uh, established that reputation as um, chief cricket correspondent of uh, Crick Info, though uh, not for very much longer. Welcome to the podcast, George Dobell. Morning. Thank you for having me. Lovely intro. No, it's what, what, what I rather like. You don't get it so often these days. Somebody who's actually a journalist and a cricket writer, and not some ex-player who is um, a bit too cosy with the establishment often, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I think that um, the, the reason there aren't so many ex-players in journalism because there isn't very much money there anymore. I mean, they go on to TV, don't they, and, and, and do very well and offer lots of insight that um, those of us who haven't played at that level probably can't. I've always thought, though, that if Sky, for example, had another journalist or two, they might be able to extract more information from some of the great players they have on there. Because you worked, didn't you, for 20 years or so for the Birmingham Post. You, you came up the hard way, as it were. You really oh, no, no. I was at the Birmingham, Birmingham Post, for like, uh, which I loved for about four or five years. Yeah, sorry. And, and, and absolutely loved it, yeah. Uh, I would have stayed there forever, but they got rid of me. <laughs> the fools. <laughs> well, hard. I mean, they got rid of... Uh, I'm don't. not even sure it comes out anymore, does it? Is it once a week, a free uh, weekly paper? They certainly don't have a cricket writer anymore. I think I replaced Jack Bannister in about 2004, <laughs> and I was there till 2008. Hmm. Interesting. George, um, it's fair to say that uh, I think you've never been an establishment um, figure. I think, you know, going looking back on your journalism, you've more often been a scourge of the, the cricketing establishment. And that was particularly true recently in a story which is still a burning issue, the ECB's cancellation of the cricket tours to um, Pakistan. You um, really took the ECB apart, the ECB's decision apart, and that... Uh, very first mealy-mouthed statement they gave. Have you any sort of had any sort of feedback from anybody in the cricket establishment as to um, how it was received? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I, I, actually, the relationship between uh, I don't know the establishment uh, to call it if you want to call it that is is probably much closer than you would think. Uh, actually, when I became <laughs> available, for want of a better word, uh, the ECP did invite me to apply for a role. Actually, in the last week or two. 
Hmm. Um, I mean, I'm not saying they would have given it to me, but they said, would I think about going for the EDI role at the ECB? What is EDI? Um, Sorry, the... Uh, equality, diversity, inclusion. Oh, right. Uh, which would be a terrific role. I, I, um, there are a couple, I mean, I, I wouldn't think about it, but um, I, I'm not positive that that role needs to be filled by a middle-aged, middle-class white fella, to be honest. Um, and also, that's that's not what I do. I, I think if, if the last six months have taught me anything, it's probably that I can make a bigger contribution as a journalist. You know, that's certainly the Azeem Rafiq case is um reinforce that impression yeah we'll come on to that but we'll come on to that but what do you your piece which was the first piece to expose the uh double standards and the incompetence of the ecb and it does them yeah. some credit they offer a job after that is um you had the fact and i read your piece the moment it came out uh that the British High Commission had not advised against it. There were no security yeah. reasons. Yeah. You had you you just basically blew apart the ECB's uh, press statement, didn't you? Yeah, well, I'm so glad that you um, picked up on that because... So I, I, uh, I can't remember where I got the original tip-off for that, actually. And, and probably if I could remember, I, I wouldn't tell you. But uh, the... Um, well, I couldn't, could I? Uh, because it came from Pakistan. But then I checked that with the same person who wrote the statement, I think, the ECB statement... And they confirmed it. So so I couldn't fault their honesty in some ways. Look, it depends what you mean by the ECB when you're criticising the ECB. I actually think that some of the people who are, are, are taking responsibility reluctantly for that decision <clears throat> were in a very, very difficult position. So I have some sympathy for the likes of Ian Watmore because I think he's pretty much been the last person standing to take any responsibility whatsoever. But... Um, I, I'm I'm fairly sure that English cricket at this uh, at the moment is riddled with self-interest and, um, and 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 you know just a failure to look at the bigger picture or take responsibility or any or any of these things and and obviously the hypocrisy in that statement was was uh, was clear for all to see but it was more than that it was more just the selfishness with which we've become accustomed yeah it's so upsetting that yeah how do you think it was a selfish statement so, well the context is that the ECB owed the PCB. They really did. Um, Pakistan and West Indies came to uh, lock down Britain in the summer of 2020. <clears throat> and they stayed for quite a long time in, in pretty uh, basic conditions to help the ECB stage test cricket or international cricket and therefore uh, honour their broadcast deal and keep the lights on in English cricket as Tom Harrison defined it at the time. So they did England a huge favour. In return, England promised to go for four days. Yeah, let's put that in perspective. Four days. I think the Pakistan tour was seven weeks in England. And they still let them down. And and because they couldn't quite pin it on security, because the British High Commission had said, well, you can't say that, because that's not true. And they couldn't quite pin it on sort of COVID. And they couldn't quite pin it on uh, extended periods in lockdown. They sort of alluded to everything without quite defining any of it. Mm. Uh, and I think it became apparent that they were just looking for an excuse to pull out because they had scheduled too much cricket, and Pakistan is not their priority. Their priority is playing India, and their priority is playing Australia because that's where they make their money. But what I mean by selfishness is that throughout English cricket, no one is looking at the bigger picture, you know, the global picture, and thinking, well, if if it's important that cricket continues in London, it's important it continues in Lahore. If it's important that we don't give in to terrorism in Birmingham, it's equally important we don't do it in Pakistan. And I thought that everyone was a bit, um, including the the sort of players and their representatives, 
were disingenuous uh, about hiding behind this statement. Um, and, you know, we, we, we know that Tom Harrison is uh, very well paid and all the rest of it. There are moments when you have to take responsibility. You know, those sorts of roles come with responsibility. And I don't really think he's taken very much. The fact is he didn't even phone Wasim Khan, which I think was another point that came out in my piece. And I'm, I'm uh, uh, rambling a bit here, but just uh, the, the thing they seem most upset with, the ECB the next day, was the detail that Tom hadn't phoned Wasim to explain the decision and actually break the news to him. That's, that's what they got in touch with, first of all, the next day. When most people, when they read the decision, which came in the wake of New Zealand's decision to pull out of that or after a, so, an apparent security threat, um, most people thought, oh, there's a security issue. Yeah. Uh, and that's perfectly reasonable. You can't put players' lives or and anybody else's lives at, at risk. And so what the bombshell revelation you had was that it wasn't a, a security issue. So yes, I, look, I don't know what I, I don't know for sure what the threat to the New Zealand team was, but I do know that the Foreign Office um, and the British High Commission and the ECB's independent security advisors did not change their travel advice. So they they all confirmed to the ECB that they thought the tour was still safe. Now I think we'd all appreciate that some players might be anxious and might want to drop out players and support stuff. Completely fine. You know, take 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 the time. I, you don't want to force anyone into these things, and you can understand that even if they weren't anxious, their families might be anxious. We all understand that. But the idea that uh, I think the press release suggested that something about that there was um, insecurity in the region. That the expression was in the region. I find that a, a fascinating uh, phrase because I presume they're talking about Afghanistan there. Now, look, there, there is, I'm afraid, terrorism everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Um, I think in, in the piece I, I, I talked about the 2005 ashes when there was a, um, a very serious... Well, the, the, the London attacks happened, I think, three days before Australia played in London on the ashes tour. The Pakistan-India match at Edgbaston, which I covered in 2017 Champions Trophy, was the night after the London Bridge attacks. You know, the idea that the UK is immune from this stuff is... I'm afraid we know absolute nonsense. We even know, I'm afraid, that New Zealand and Christchurch is not immune from this stuff. Nowhere is. So the idea that terrorism is that something that happens in a foreign land is, seems to me, um, well, uh, unsavoury uh, at best. I, I, I don't like the sort of insinuation. And also, we have this theory that uh, it's important that, you know, well, the, the British ideal that we, uh, we keep calm and carry on well, we don't yeah. seem to do that anymore. We don't. We don't fight them on the beaches. We don't fight them on the landing grounds. We we surrender on the beaches. We run off from the <laughs> landing grounds. You know, if it's important that we don't give in to terrorism here, it must surely be important we don't give in to terrorism anywhere else. Now, we don't know what the threats were, but we do know that the experts have said that the security protocols in place, which were the same as for the royal family, were more than adequate, and that they advised the tour could still go ahead. So the ECB cannot claim, and to be fair, they haven't exactly claimed, that um, the tour was called off on security grounds. It was called off for a combination of reasons, the biggest one being the ECB have uh, scheduled far too much cricket and the players are, are, are breaking under the weight of it, and so they were looking for an excuse to call it off. Now, the, the PCA, um, uh, the play, uh, that's the Players' Union, have, I think, been slightly disingenuous, saying that they never made a formal decision to call it off. They, I, don't, I think that's probably true. They didn't. They weren't asked formally, so they didn't say formally. But every sort of indication they had given was that they weren't very keen to go. So the ECB board, uh, 
not wanting to put the players in uh, an invidious position, took the decision out of their hands. And I think they probably did it with fairly good intentions. But I also think it was irresponsible. I thought it was selfish. And I think they got it wrong. I think they've got it very, very badly wrong. And I think they've been... And I think it was 24 hours between the, the decision of my piece being published when they didn't get any criticism because everyone just presumed, oh, well, New Zealand have had a reason. You know, um, they must have had a good security reason. Uh, and, and the reason I took so well to, long to publish, by the way, is because I didn't think the piece was very good and um, I wanted a few more hours to have a moment of inspiration, which never came. I find that it, it really <laughs> yeah, does. Really, yeah. um, so, so I thought, sod it, it's better to get it out there and actually just make the point that this is very, very disappointing. Yeah. Uh, and also just uh, make the point that we, we've got to stop being so damn selfish and just think of English cricket and, and that's all that matters. Uh, it's not just England, India and Australia the same. We have become foul, yeah. selfish, egocentric inward looking money driven beasts i think it's about it's it's money isn't it which is the the ecb they they do get paid an awful lot and they they got huge pay rises didn't they last summer the people who are the senior there at the same time as cutting the wages of i don't know i don't know that they did to be fair i think the pay rises go back a few years and actually last summer to be fair to them they took fairly substantial pay cuts right um but nevertheless it gives you the impression of being a sort of a marketing operation interested in money, and there are mm. wider. It's not just. It's not the, just. I was going to say it's not just cricket, is it? I mean, it's we've got our country in the Western world needs all the friends it can get in Pakistan, and this decision has um, has insulted and alienated millions of uh, of ordinary Pakistanis at a critical time. Yeah, but they think they can get by without those. You see, Richard, they, 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 they you know, they, yeah. that's okay. They, 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 they're not paying for the Sky broadcast subs, so they, they, they yeah. think they can get by without that. As long as the, you, you notice how uh, diplomatic Tom Harrison was when India pulled out of the um, final mm. test of that series. There, there, there were no crosswords. There were just there was a bit of diplomacy and a suggestion that you know we'll just play it next next year. So they're very uh, motivated by the relationship with India and Australia because those are the relationships that effectively pay the bills. But you're right that um, it's a short-sighted, um, uh, it's it's hugely short-sighted policy, this, because uh, eventually England will again be in the position where they need someone like Pakistan or, or West Indies to come across at short notice. And um, we don't reciprocate. It's, it's not a reciprocal relationship at all, is it? Oscar Wilde said that a cynic is somebody who knows the price of everything and a value of nothing. And that more or less describes the uh, ECB, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, they they are hugely... They would tell you that they're running things like a business, but I, I, I would argue that um, running a national governing body is not the same as a business. Uh, it, it's not, because you don't actually judge the outcomes by how much money you make. You have to judge the outcomes, surely, by how many people watch, enjoy and play cricket. Mm. And, and I guess the results are the side, but even that's a bit secondary. So it depends how you judge them. Even if you're a business, you don't. Um, you're part of an international business, and you don't insult two hundred million sort of customers. <laughs> well, not just that, but they've given in on a real basic level. They've given in to the bully. I mean, mm. uh, we all look. If there are proper strong security threats, you'd be an idiot to just ignore them. Of course you would. But there had there was, which I also reported, a security threat ahead of the ODI at Leicester a day or so later, when uh, New Zealand and England's women were playing. And uh, there had been two security threats, actually. And the game went ahead. In fact, they didn't even, they didn't tell anybody. That was another leak. Um, and it was leaked from somebody who thought, this is blatant hypocrisy, you know. They're going ahead with this game. 
why are they why are they pulling out of the other games when security uh, the security services had looked into both and said these are not credible threats. So why has that happened? No, well, right. I tell you, because the, the morals of convenience the whole way through. And by the way, even if you think that the ECB are just running things financially, they've made a hell of a mess of that. Like four years ago, they had, I think, uh, the reserves were something like £77 million. And before COVID, they had spent them all. I mean, they had spent them all. Whatever they say in the accounts, they're actually, it's it's negative. So um, they had spent all the money before the rainy day came, even though they've had the biggest broadcast deal in their history, because you cannot judge these things by how much money you're bringing in. That's not, <laughs> you know, no one, I, I remember when uh, England lost the Ashes in Australia, I can't even remember which time it was now, but Tom Harrison was there and we were in Melbourne, so it would have been 3-0 down already. And Tom Harrison, uh, he said something like, I think that English cricket supporters are absolutely delighted by the terrific governance of the game in the UK. <laughs> Come on, Tom. They're not on the stand shouting, yeah, we're 3-0 down, but we've got the governance. Uh, it's nonsense and disingenuous because he can't honestly believe that. I want to just make a contrast to 1968, which is an England tour of Pakistan, which Peter has written about extensively and indeed I have a bit too. Um 1968, the MCC sent a full England team to Pakistan and they made them go through a, a long tour which was full of discomfort and stress and actual danger because they thought it was in the national interest. The Foreign Office advised them the tour must go ahead. Um, it, it would help to prop up the um, regime of Ayub Khan, which was then thought to be a British national interest. And the players, basically, the MCC went, went through with that and the players had to endure that. And now we seem to have a completely different attitude where the national interest doesn't seem to figure in, in the decision at all, the wider interest of the country. No, it doesn't. I agree. But you know why, don't you? Because they don't have to anymore. You know, players then were subservient mm. because they were poor. Players now are, are, are tremendously wealthy, and that's great. But, you know, with this great power comes some responsibility. And I, I, I wish that the people who were looking after them, because the, the players, you know, they're very often, without being patronising, they're, they're kids sometimes, yeah? And, but you just hope that the people looking after them are looking after more than their finances. And so that they are saying, you know, actually, you know, maybe this would be a good thing to do. Look, I, I'm absolutely positive England could have found uh, 15 men in particular who would have gone on that tour. The women's team might have been a bit more of a challenge, but there's no way that the ECB couldn't have found 15 men who would have toured Pakistan. I don't think the players should be slaves of the, of the Foreign Office interests and what the Foreign Office says, but... I do think that the governing body of English cricket might take the wider interests of the country into account when it's put to them, and and it might also put it to the players, which doesn't seem to have been done at all. So, look, we know this is uh, stressful and uncomfortable and an addition you probably don't want uh, to the the programme, but it would be good for the country if you went to Pakistan for just four days and played these two T20s. It would mean a lot to Pakistan. It means a lot to our relationship with this key country. I think that's a completely reasonable request to say that it would be good. You know, this, this is what sport should do. It should unify. We've seen it do this everywhere, not just cricket, but sport can unify. But, you know, the the, the elephant in the room, and it's hardly um, <clears throat> revolutionary to say this, is that by not going, those England players who could have been on the tour are now available to play the whole IPL. They're, they're available yeah. for the knockout stages of the IPL. And, and, and that is absolutely absolutely a key factor here as it was when England came home from South Africa 
for Christmas, they were they were um, some of them were worried that they wouldn't be able to play in the Big Bash if if anyone in the squad had contracted uh, COVID. They they others would have had to isolate or may have had to isolate, and they might have lost their Big Bash contracts. So the whole way along the line, it's just about money. George, you've also been another major story, uh, which you've been really instrumental in bringing to the fore, is um, the story of Azim Rafiq and the report into the treatment he received from Yorkshire County Cricket Club. The, the story itself may not be all that familiar to some of our listeners, particularly overseas. So can you just tell us the basic facts of the story? Sure. Azim Rafiq uh, left Yorkshire a few years ago and uh, belatedly claimed that he had suffered racial harassment and bullying at the hands of the players and the club, actually, and that his reports into this had been ignored. He had uh, conducted a couple of interviews where he had made this claim before he did one with me. Uh, one of the great benefits of working at Crick Info is it has a huge reach and afterwards, and uh, partly due to the relationships with the ECB, the positive relationships, uh, Yorkshire were forced to respond. They then had an inquiry, which was meant to be completed in, say, two months or something. It took 12 or 13, uh, and it upheld several of his complaints, eight or nine from the top of my head. So it, it, it admitted that he had faced racially um, motivated harassment at Yorkshire at times. Um the Yorkshire were dragged kicking and screaming into having that inquiry, which wasn't independent anyway, and um, they still haven't released the contents of the report, even to the ECB, by the way, who are the game's regulator. Mm. So um, Azim has been a real delight to work with. I didn't know him before, but he has um, uh, been really brave. He's been isolated throughout. He, he, he lost a child at the end of his um, time at Yorkshire. Oh, he oh, is... <laughs> Uh, he he's very bright but he's also quite broken and he is um determined to make things better for the next generation and because of that he turns down every attempt to silence him we've built up this uh, really terrific relationship where he's trusted me to tell his story and i think he's making a real difference and i think he it, it feels like a real crossroads moment in the game to me and uh, i think we'll all go uh, we'll look back and think we owe him plenty it's a crossroads moment in the game because it's never really been understood the extent of the racism inside English cricket and how it's affected individual yeah. players and particularly um, black players uh, yeah. as well, which one of the reasons why they've stopped coming through as they seem to be doing in the in the 70s and 80s is simply because they've, of the, they're discouraged for racist reasons. Well, again, you could come down to, to money. Haringey uh, needed a tiny bit of investment from the ECB to continue. A load of players had come through the Haringey Cricket College. The ECB stopped funding it. Therefore, uh, the tap yeah. was turned off. The players who came through it, who were they? they were, well, Elaine, uh, Piper, I think Sid Lawrence. I, 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 I don't know off the top of my head, but, yeah, but uh, it, it does. It was a real sort of pathway, a university, really, for for black kids who, who ha didn't get the opportunities that public school educated white kids get you know and it really up. worked yeah and we've got to the stage where i think um i did a piece last year and i think there were two state educated black players in uh, british born black players in the in the county game i mean lord almighty one of those had previously right. been a professional footballer so he hadn't really come through a conventional route so uh yeah it's it's a, a hell of a problem and, and by the way i actually think that the, the there were probably roots of racism it might be too strong a word in the pakistan decision because i honestly think that english cricket has made a decision that 
that economy, that cricket board is slightly less important. And that is a patronising view born of what? Elitism. Whether that's racism. I sometimes think racism is too strong a word. We need we need a hundred other words. Richard and I have written a piece for the upcoming uh, Wisdom Monthly, Cricket Monthly, looking at all many of the other episodes, haven't we, Richard, at which, where, where the Pakistan cricket team has been treated abominably by the English. I mean, it go back, goes back to D.B. Carr's tour of 1956 when they yeah. kidnapped Idris Beg and humiliated him. What's a shame is that the relationship had improved so much that those, those series that used to be terribly bad-tempered between England and Pakistan, full of uh, distrust... Um, had become, I thought, really fantastic. They're real celebrations. And actually, I thought that those things yeah. are, are, uniting, are uniting and they're probably very positive for the you know Pakistan community living in the UK. So th- there were all sorts of things that had improved from both sides, for, um, not least because of personalities like Misper and Moen. Uh, and um, and before them, uh, Abdul Qadir, Imran Khan, you know, who... Uh, well, I'm re- not sure that, that, that those years were... It was a particularly close relationship. Yeah. You are at Misbah. The 2016 tour was amazing. It was a real watershed. Yeah. Misbah and, Misbah and Yunus shaped the um, that tour and the you know the attitudes to Pakistan because they were players who inspired terrific respect um, yeah. right across the world. But um, I want to just go back to the report into Azim Rafiq. Yeah. Do you know who's actually seen it, George? I mean, I don't think yeah, Azim do, yeah. Rafiq uh, has seen it himself, has he? No, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. Yeah, even though it's about him. Three people have seen it at the club, as I understand it. The, the chair, the director of cricket and the chief executive. Has, has the ECB seen it? And no. they've not? No. I don't think they have. Have, no. have they asked for it? Yeah, yeah, they've demanded it. Um, I can tell you this, that um, Azim's uh, employment tribunal judge demanded it by October the 8th, actually, so very, very soon. Um, mm. I th- I'm pretty sure that it's October the 8th. And he said, the judge said, you've got to give it to Azim and you've got to give it to me, the judge, uh, on that date. Uh, and that is interesting. And he uh, unredacted as well. So uh, mm. what are they going to do there? I presumed that they would try and settle with Azim before that date. They haven't yet, not or not increased their offer. Um, or they produce it, or they're in contempt of court, I think. That's how I. That's I how I see that's... their options. So they're, oh, they're in. Right. No, no. I I actually have some sympathy for one or two of the people involved in Yorkshire. It's not. It's not to, to use a pun a black and white situation. There are good people at Yorkshire. There really are, and there are some people who didn't understand what was happening and just need educating. And there are some people who are racist. So there's, there's you know, there's like the rest of society. There's a huge amount of variety, uh, and they are in a slightly tricky position. And some of the allegations are very, very strong. And there are individuals named who who would sue at the drop of a hat. Of course they would. Uh, but it, So I understand them not publishing it generally. Or, um, but I don't really think you could justify not giving it to the regulator. And by the way, the, the report, and I've seen a, a lot of the... Oh, I've, I think I've seen all the evidence. I just haven't seen the uh, uh, compiled report. They didn't. They ignored an, a lot of evidence because they tried to minimise... Well, they tried to focus on Azeem. But what happened is... For example, youth team coaches came forward and said, I told about their experience. Now, these are white youth team coaches, coaching, say, under 13s, under 15s. And they told, they they say they were told not to pick too many people from a Pakistani background because that's not what the club wanted them to do. So there's all sorts of deeply alarming 
stuff which hasn't been investigated and will need to be investigated and which the ECB and now people in politics know about. So in a way, we're at the start of this, but I do think it's gathered a momentum that uh, seemed impossible a year or two ago when I first spoke to Azim. And um, and I do think he's in the position now where he, you know, no one wins exactly. Let's remember again, he's lost a kid, he's lost a career, you know, there's no winning. But he, I do think he's going to change the game and that a spotlight is going to be shined on the problem. And that's exactly what it needs. Very much so. I mean, there's a much quoted statistic. I mean, considering how many people of Asian origin have been born and raised in Yorkshire, are cricket lovers, cricket players, the first Asian player to play for Yorkshire, Asian origin player to play for Yorkshire, was Sachin Tendulkar as an overseas player in the 1990s. Um, and there's a long legacy of, of underrepresentation of, uh, mm. of Asian and indeed um, and indeed black players in um, in Yorkshire cricket. And if you look at the um, you know the Yorkshire team now on the Yorkshire website, you just see um, you only see Adil Rashid as as representative of the you know the Asian community in Yorkshire, and you see no Asian coaches in the coaching staff on the on the fixture. No, and it and it, and it, it, it is a problem throughout the game. To be fair, I, I think that uh, the, um, the South Asian Cricket Association stats suggest that something like thirty percent of recreational cricket is played by people from an Asian background in the UK uh, or in England or Wales, rather. And I think that every rep, uh, every level up to sort of academy at counties, people from Asian heritage are overrepresented. But then you get to um, professional level and the, the, the numbers are something like 3%. So why is there this huge drop-off? Well, I, 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 I'll guess, um, very much like football used to be and football management still is, uh, people don't want to give non-white people, it seems, any power. I really, I really, really mean that. I, th- I absolutely think that's a problem. And, you know, uh, there, there have been some great things that have happened in the last 18 months. You know, the fact that we're having these conversations, I think, is hugely important. Uh, you know, the Michael Haldin and Ebony uh, stuff. Um, again, the game has been dragged kicking and screaming into it. E- e- Ebony's ACE programme, that hasn't been, really been funded by the ECB. The last I heard, they've given something like £25,000, which is peanuts. Um, so uh, it, it, other people have had to come up with this, uh, other businesses, uh, individuals. There's an awfully long way to go. It's not just Yorkshire. I wouldn't want people to think, I think my point is, I wouldn't want people just to think Yorkshire needs to be uh, sorted and the game will fall into place. Things might be a bit worse at Yorkshire than elsewhere, uh, and I'm not having to go at them, but I have just seen Warwickshire win the county championship. Oh. And I don't think that did did any... Oh, they had uh, an overseas player from India. Did any other Asian players play for them before the Bobbleys Trophy game? You know, for a city like Birmingham. Didn't, didn't Wazim Khan play for Warwickshire? Yeah, yeah, way, way, way back. Way yeah, of course he did, yeah. yeah. He did, yeah. But, he, I mean, he moved on. He, he went to Sussex after that, and then he went to Derby. You know, uh, Warwickshire... Uh, Given they, that Birmingham is right. is part of their constituency, right? <laughs> it, it, it's an amazing statistic what you just said. It's a very damning statistic, isn't it? And when they started the ACE program in Birmingham, I'm afraid they have found that there are, there are no black cricketers left, and I'm hardly exaggerating. So, so I can't remember uh, how many young players came for trials at Warwickshire um, the year before last. It was something like 800. And if I ask you to guess how many of those came from an Afro-Caribbean background, what, what do you think that number is? It's one. 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 Now, this, this is the city that, that, that the West Indies used to go and play at Hansworth Park because there was such a huge amount of support. What have we done? Where's it gone? 
it, 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 I honestly think it's been a concerted effort to drive people out of the game. I, I really do, because because in the 80s, there was a sense that, I don't know, Caribbean supporters, what, made too much noise, were, were enjoying it too much, were rubbing the English noses in it when they were 5 nil down at the Oval. But it, well, they were great. I mean, I used to go to those matches and watch England being, being smashed. And, but the crowds, the West Indies crowds, were part of the enjoyment of it, weren't of they? They, they were. really were. They were fantastic. Of course they were. And if you couldn't enjoy that West Indies side, or actually the Pakistan side that you were talking about just oh, now, yeah. you don't really like cricket, do you? George, in the context of this this conversation, Moeen Ali, who we, such a beautiful, exciting, wonderful cricketer, announced his retirement from Test cricket. Of course, he he started off in Warwickshire, and I read his autobiography, and he he, he had obviously had a lot of problems at Warwickshire, um, and then he one wonders if he had problems playing for England as well. Uh, you know, he was messed around a lot. Uh, you know him, don't you, quite well, Moeen. I do. I've known him quite a long time. I mean, uh, um, I went to his wedding, actually, and I've known his dad since um, I was probably about 12 or 13 or something. So I've seen it, and he was always going to be a super player. So I've sort of seen his his, his journey unfold, and um, uh, he, he very kindly offered to do that retirement story with me, which was really good of him because he needn't have done that. He could have, I certainly didn't pay anything. So, um, yeah, I, I was sad. Um they actually, um, I think his dad phoned a day or two before the Manchester Test match and asked for some help with uh, writing a retirement statement. Um, he was going to go after that game, come what may, or during the game, actually. Um, and then it didn't happen, and um, he decided to go anyway. He you know, left it a week to think about it. I don't think he could bear the idea of going back to Australia. I don't think he could bear the idea of, you know, he's in the IPL, he's in the T20 World Cup squad. He was looking at four months away. Uh, potentially without families, obviously very difficult to go to Australia for families right now. And he decided to call it a day. But I think more than that, he he maybe had, um, he's hardly played any first class cricket. I think he has maybe played two games since he was dropped. Sorry, that's that wouldn't be right because he's played three or four tests, but that would be all he's played since he yeah. was dropped in August 2019 from the England test side. And, and, you know, there, there were times when he didn't look as if he were quite at the top of his game. You know, there were maybe the odd more four ball than ever. And he was never going to be consistent. We know what Moen's like. He's beautiful, and uh, but he's inconsistent. And uh, he knew that he wasn't quite able to do it to the level he wanted to do it anymore. So, uh, and, and perhaps he doesn't need to do it financially. Um, his game had... I thought um, with the bat had deteriorated quite a lot. I mean, I think I think he's finished with a test batting average of 28. Nowhere near what he could have achieved, in my view. Yes. But equally, he's taken 195 test wickets, and none of us saw that coming when you and I, he was 25 years old. So um, that, I don't know. What, how, how can you uh, classify his career? It's been brilliant, uh, entertaining, maddening, uh, and surprising. Uh, and in the end, he's done it all on his own terms. If you're going to ask if we got the best out of him as a team, of course not. Is there a, why? Why was it that he wasn't nurtured properly? Was there? A... Well, he's not the only one who wasn't nurtured properly. Uh, to be fair, I mean, you know, if you if, if you look back, did did England get the best out of Graham Hick and Mark Ramprakash? Well, hell no. But if you remember Moeen's second Test match, which was in 2014, he's got a, a really terrific. No, the second one was against the se- in his second Test. He got a terrific hundred against Sri Lanka at oh, right. Leeds, the game where J- Jimmy Anderson was out to the penultimate ball. And then in the t- uh, 2016, he scored four centuries in the calendar year, which is you know 
a pretty good effort, isn't it? And and they responded by moving him from four five wherever he was batting to number eight generally. And batting with the tail, he stopped batting like a batter because you have to get the hell on with it. Of course you do. And he started thinking differently about his game. He's, he, I think he had grown up identifying as a batter, you know, and he stopped being that. And I don't think he quite knew how to be. So the seeds of the problem were right there. And uh, I think he felt that uh, he was sometimes judged quite harshly as a bowler. I think most people would accept that English is, England is in a very weak period of spin bowling, the product of the poor domestic structure, and that he actually filled the void left by Graham Swan better than most people thought was possible. But he had one bad game at the start of the 2019 Ashes, and it was a poor game, no way around it. And he was not just dropped, but he lost his central contract when he had been the highest wicket-taker in the world in the previous 12 months. And at that stage, I think he thought, well, he thought, so do you, really. If, if that's how you're going to treat me, I need to make a living my own way. And he went, he started on the franchise path. And by the time he was called back, he was just on a different path. His mentality had changed. His views on what he could achieve had changed. And and I think the pilot light had gone out, really, on his yeah, test it's quite interesting. He was brought back. He had a very good game in India. He did. And then he was dropped again. He, he was, that was for COVID reasons. I mean, for he that. wasn't dropped. He wasn't dropped, to be fair. If you remember what happened is he, he, he had been on tour a long time and he had caught COVID in Sri Lanka. Or actually, he caught COVID in Birmingham and taken it to Sri Lanka. Um, he then spent quite a lot of time on tour not playing, played one game in which he took eight wickets and if England could catch, he would have taken a tenfer. And uh, at the end of it, he was due to go home, having not seen his family for a long time. And he's got two children. His son mm. was on the Skype to him every day, saying, when are you coming home, Daddy, and all the rest of it? He had to go home. And Joe Root said, rather clumsily, bless him, uh, Moeen's chosen to go home, which sort of threw Moeen under the bus a bit, because it yeah. suggested that Moeen had, you know, put other stuff in front of the cause which wasn't how it was termed with everybody else, you know, when Joss Butler or Johnny Bairstow or everyone else went home. It was just Moen who who was uh, described as having chosen to. And again, I just think the divides get a little bit bigger, even though Joe apologised and, you know, Lord knows he's entitled to make the odd mistake. Um, Yeah, I just, as I say, they they embarked on different paths, uh, him and the team, and he just didn't feel quite as comfortable in that environment anymore. Not not the dressing room environment. He likes the team. He likes the players. But it's a very different game when you're used to bowling four overs. You have to be on top of it. And he, I think he was going at four and a half an over in the recent test series. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? He, he, he just didn't quite feel he was able to do the job as well as he once could. He wasn't loving fielding. What an honour you had to, uh, to know him well. Mm. Yeah. Because uh, he's been a fabulous... Um, he still is, of course. Well, his biggest role in cricket might be ahead of him still. I, I would like to think he could have some sort of statesman-like role in, in cricket. I do think he, he's in, um, proved uh, the lot of British Muslims in cricket in particular. Yeah. The, the people, he, he was very, very keen to say, yep, I'm Muslim, I'm British, I'm proud of both. A lot of people are very reluctant to talk about that stuff, understandably, because they're sports people, they're not necessarily the most eloquent. And I think he, he did um, increase sort of education in that regard. And it was lovely to see, you know, terraces, British crowds, absolutely relishing his good performance and supporting him brilliantly. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot to look back on with fondness with Mo's career. 
George, I'd like to ask you a, a bit about your actual trade of being a, a cricket writer. You recently became chairman of the Cricket Writers Club. Um, uh, can you tell us a bit about that, about the club itself? Because I know its membership is is very much prized. How many members does it have at the moment, roughly? You'd think that's the sort of thing I'd know, wouldn't you? Um, <laughs> maybe 450? I mean, I was ambushed into that role. Let, let's be very, very clear. Uh, uh, Ali Mitchell was doing a terrific job as our first female chair, but she had other things she wanted to do in her life. And, and the minutiae of, of the role is um, uh, surprisingly time-consuming. So I was trying to help her, and I came into a meeting. She said, I'm standing down. I think George will take over. And everyone voted for it. And I begged. I begged not to do it. I mean, the minutes are embarrassing. Um, so, yes, I mean, it's also a huge honour. I mean, I look at that. The, there's an honours board at Lords, <laughs> which has my name on it now as, as chair of the Cricket Writers Club. I don't think Athers is on an honours board at Lords. I don't <laughs> think Sachin is. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, so that, I mean, that tickles me. But, um, you know, these things, they're, um, they're a bit silly. You laugh them off. I, 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 there are one or two things that we're doing which I'm a little bit proud of. But basically, it's it's a social club. And we have a lunch and we get together. It's important that uh, we do that in these times and have a lovely time. Honestly, I love my job. I, I love sitting around with friends talking rubbish about cricket. And that's what it feels like 80% of the time. But I'll tell you one of the things we're doing. We've set up a bursary mm. named after Bethan James, who was Steve James's daughter who tragically died a few months oh. ago. Uh, she was a sports journalist. And what I, well, we realised during the summer of 2020 is that I think there were 12 of us cricket journos inside the bubble reporting on games. And there, there, there was a lack of women for sure. There was a lack of non-white journalists for sure. I think there were two and one woman, two non-white journalists. Uh, and, and I think 11 of the 12 were privately educated as well. So what this bursary will do is um, identify people from sort of um, working class backgrounds, for want of a better word, people who maybe can't afford to break into the industry and pay for them to, to have work experience opportunities. So we'll pay for their hotels, their travel, a wage if necessary, and ensure that, uh, well, sorry, try and help uh, the, the, uh, our industry be more representative of the society it should serve. Our game needs to do that as a whole, of course. And this is a tiny drop in the ocean. But that's one of the small things that we're doing. Ali, the previous year, Ali Mitchell, who is better than me in pretty much every way, had fought for uh, cricket journalists to retain their jobs as part of the Reporters Network and did a terrific job of it. Mm. So most of the time, it's about sitting around and arranging a lunch and lovely things like that. But just occasionally, you get an opportunity to maybe make a positive contribution as well. A bit like the job actually you know very often we just write about cricket and that's lovely no pro but just occasionally you maybe get a chance to make a difference and uh, you have to take those opportunities yes you're, 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 you're john arlott there you are and you get this letter in green ink from south africa from somebody nobody's ever heard of and you instead of just throwing it in the waste basket and you you answer it and you change history <laughs> no, that's that's the thing. Well, the, well, those, that, that that's the uh, the best example, and uh, I wouldn't uh, claim to be anything like that. But um, that that that's the aspiration. That's the aspiration, and it's worth bearing in mind, isn't it? Have you personally had any letters in green ink from uh, from from distant places? Have you had any requests from uh, the cricketers or journalists to to give them a helping hand? Yeah, I mean, um, to be honest, I don't know how much detail. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, and that's a huge responsibility. I mean, look, I, I, honestly, I got one from a taxi driver the other day uh, who, whose family was in Afghanistan and concerned. And um, 
Yeah, uh, and and it's been lovely to be able to. Um, oh, it looks like we might be able to make a bit of a difference there, but that's not anything to do with the cricket runners club. It was just uh, a taxi driver recognised me and asked for help, which is an extraordinary situation to be in. Yeah, mm. I imagine quite a serious responsibility. I'm sure you're. Well, no, generally, no. Of course, it isn't. I write about cricket for a living. I mean, my yeah. my, my wife yeah. works in Birmingham Children's Hospital. You know, she's she's got a proper job. Um, and, and, you know, there, there are days when I've come home worrying about someone having changed my semicolon to a comma or something, and, and, and she's been dealing with a dying child. So, you know, uh, we write about cricket for a living. It, it, just keep it in perspective. <laughs> Tell us about your own journey into cricket writing, George. You said I've seen some earlier interviews you've given. You've, you said you tried other careers, music, and um, you had a career in IT. When you, I did not so have a drew, career in IT. I didn't even know well, what it you stood drew, for. Yes, you said you drew very important diagrams. People thought, <laughs> did <laughs> tell I us about that and what, what you no, were actually I didn't, doing. I genuinely didn't even know what the word stood for, IT. I couldn't <laughs> stood for. I didn't. It was pathetic. <laughs> um, so I, I, I was, I, no, I am an unsuccessful musician. That's what I am. And um, and I was working, I think it was at Roddy Scott's at the time in Birmingham. And I think I was being paid something like £2.91 an hour. And I wrote a piece for the cricketer about Dermot Reeve and they gave me, I don't know, £200 or something. So, um, you know, I started doing that instead. I just wasn't very good at anything else. Yeah. It's quite interesting. That's how Neville Cardus came into the game, isn't it? He uh, Was, was he working at Roddy Scott's? <laughs> Not at Ronnie Scott. It was the music side. Of it. He was then off. He, he wandered yes. into the Manchester Guardian, and uh, yes. and he, he he used to review opera. And then he was sent to Lions cover a county game, and that was the beginning of Neville Carter's. Yeah, it is. That, it, is it is amazing. But the, the similarities there that we've probably got absolutely no skills. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's no practical. Yeah, no practical skills whatsoever. I'm purely decorative. <laughs> I can only say that because this is purely audio, can't I? Right. <laughs> we're to, we're, we're, I think you're underselling yourself, George. But you, you did, you've, um, you did bowl once. Bowl West Indian Test player Philo Wallace um, in a match, but you wouldn't claim to have been, you know, uh, at the top of uh, the tree as a cricketer. Um, speaking seriously for a minute, do you think it was? Um, it's made a difference to you and others not to have been in the not to have been a cricketer. Do you think it's made you think and and work harder about analysing cricket and reporting it accurately than perhaps if you'd been a you know a um, a top class cricketer you know absorbed it all and still been on good terms with the establishment? I think that it would have been a huge advantage to have been a better cricketer and played at a higher level. I'm sure I'd have much more insight. Uh, so. Uh, no, I, I, I mean, if, if you try and compensate with other skills, fine. But you could have the other skills and still have been a, a terrific cricketer. So, no, I, I think that's a weakness in my, in, in my game, I'm afraid. Uh, I, I wish I had. I told Jack Shantry that I'd have swapped my career with his in a heartbeat, and I mean that. Jack Shantry was a sort of journeyman War- Worcestershire cricketer, wasn't he? That's right, that's right. Yeah. And um, uh, with a preposterous bowling action who enjoyed, you know, some good days in the sun, retired at 30. And I used to make fun of him uh, fondly, but I did used to make fun of him. Uh, but actually, I'm full of admiration for, for those people. And, and, and I hope I'm not very critical of players because, again, I, I, at this stage of my career, certainly, because I, I, I'm, they're, they're, they're kids living their dreams that I wasn't good enough to, to live. Uh, in terms of the, 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 to try and give you a serious answer, Richard, I suppose that 
Uh, my perspective has always been that of the supporter. Um, I think that the game can be a little bit cosy. And one of the big problems with it is it's run by people who have forgotten what it's like to pay to watch cricket. Uh, and that is sort of one of those fundamental issues which I keep coming back to. So umpires have tended to be ex-players. They don't know what it's like to spend 100 quid on a ticket, come to the game and wonder why when it's not raining, no one's playing cricket. Uh, and I think we've got to go back to sort of, well, go back to it. I don't think it's ever happened. We have to respect the spectator. So I've set up something. It's got a called... lot better. I mean, I always it thought has. that Dickie Bird was the most overrated umpire of all time because he actually hated. I, 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 I said, I, I, do you remember in the seventies and eighties? I mean, they, yeah, they, they... I remember. I remember being at Lords and Dickie was umpire and being incredibly frustrated because I don't think it rained all day. So I, I, I like Dickie uh, and and I think he was a very good decision maker. He's a better after dinner speaker than umpire by some distance. Yeah, I thought as an umpire that those guys Constance, I couldn't abide. I've never forgiven those uh, those decisions he made against the Pakistan tourists in ninety two. Those, I think they're much better now than they were. I think you're right, but I still think that uh, there were there were moments uh, last year when they were, they were coming off a bad light, for example. In fact, they did yeah. it this week at Lords. Look, I just think the spectators should be at the heart of everything. And if people haven't heard of the Cricket Supporters Association, mm. I urge them to look into it and join it because the only way you'll make the buggers listen is by force. Mm. Yes. Now, tell us about your latest move. You, you've been so important at Crick Info. To see you leaving was a bit of a shock. Oh, I've had a lovely time at Crick Info. I've been there for 10 years. Or um, Do you know what? I think I'd have got a bonus if I'd stayed to January the 1st. <laughs> so um, so I've screwed that up, haven't I? But no, I had to get out. I, it was dry, it was making me a bit unhappy. And so I quit. Why was, why was that? Because it's as many oh, I didn't. I, I think well, I felt they'd fallen out of love with me a bit. Um, and I didn't feel particularly valued. There was a, a, a specific moment, seen as you ask, where I had asked all the cricket media companies for their help with the Beth and James bursary, which is something that's important to me, mm. and every one of them replied apart from ESPN. Now, ESPN has <laughs> talked a great game on diversity, but diversity starts at home. Diversity's not always easier. Diversity's not putting out press releases and um, photo opportunities. Sometimes you've got to work at the difficult stuff. Sometimes it's hard. And they didn't even bother to reply. They didn't have the courtesy to reply to me, and they didn't have the courtesy to take the issue seriously enough to reply. So at that stage, I thought my values in your state align. I've never told anyone that. Mm. I haven't even told my wife that. Well, but that's that that's the key moment. That, if I'm honest, that was the key moment. It wasn't that I just I speculated you didn't you never said anything. There was some pressure on your copy. Not really. I mean, um, yeah. they were a bit reluctant to report. They, they don't have a Caribbean correspondent, and I love West Indies cricket. Mm. And um, I thought, again, that's a diversity issue, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, there, there was some, there were a few things, but that, that's basically it. And um, I didn't have anything sorted, but I thought it's difficult in these moments. You've got to get a balance between sort of backing yourself and also having the sort of humility or the common sense to realise there are only about 10 or 12 jobs out there that you want to do, uh, and you might never get another one again. But I th it was making me unhappy, and I thought for my own sort of ability to look in the mirror that I had to go. I think you have to toss the dice once in a while in life, actually. Can you tell us about your future plans? <clears throat> I can't, but I mean, it's, I feel embarrassed not being able to, but just out of courtesy to the people. I have just signed a contract for somewhere else. Um, I'm basically going to do the same job for a different company, uh, the company have been extremely nice to me. They've wooed me. 
They've made me yeah, feel valued. They should. Uh, well, they I should. don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm being needy and pathetic. But um, yeah. but they, they basically just say, we want you to be you. We want you to do what you do. And we want to celebrate that. So, you know, um, that that's what I'm going to do. And, and I feel blessed to be able to do it. I really love uh, watching cricket. And uh, I love being able to sometimes, occasionally, make a little bit of a point that might make a bit of a difference. So it, it's it's a good combination, and I very much like the the dressing room. Sorry, press box environment. I say that because I was talking to Mark Robinson, the Warwickshire coach, the other day about you know the dressing room environment and how difficult it is to leave. I think that's very similar to the press box these days. It it, it feels like quite a benevolent, friendly environment. It wasn't always that way. And um, yeah, it would be it would have been a real wrench if I left Lords yesterday after that Bob Bullish Trophy oh. game to think I was never going back. That would have been very very difficult. George, very glad you are going to go back to the press box. We're certainly looking forward to reading the results. Um, George, we get um, a lot of requests, Peter and I, from well, from all sorts of people, particularly young people, about you know how do you break into cricket writing? So. Um, you know, what would be your expert advice to um, to anybody who wanted to become a cricket writer? How should he go about it? Excuse me, he or she go about it? The easiest way is definitely to play a few games for England, preferably as captain, <laughs> and then be off the column <laughs> or work for Sky. Otherwise, be be very aware that you're going to have to take a vow of poverty. Oh, it's impossible. It's impossible. Look, it, it is almost impossible because I came up through local papers and magazines and local papers are gone, haven't they, in terms of cricket coverage. That, that, that route has gone and it's not coming back. But what I have noticed is that there's always a way if you're good enough and work hard enough. And um, so, you know, me saying it's impossible, don't let anyone say that to you because if I can do it, Lord almighty, anyone can. Uh, but it's very difficult and, and, and it's as much about um, contacts and be multi-skilled. It's not just about writing. You're going to have to do audio. You're going to have to do video. You're going to have to work hard and make contacts. Um, it's very, very difficult, I'm afraid. Uh, how many how many cricket writers are there making a living, you know, earning, say, earning enough to, to, to just say that they write about cricket? I promise you there's a lot more players. There's probably more England players than people making a living writing about cricket. So just well. bear in mind what the, what the chances are. Well, there's so much more we could have talked about, and perhaps, like others, we'll have you back for a second innings. But for now, thank you very, very much for joining us, and best of luck in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, I fear I've rambled inconsequentially for, for a very long time, <laughs> but it's uh, kind of what I do. But thank you. I've really, really enjoyed it. It would be nice to, to have done it over a beer or, so, or a cup of tea or something, but there, there we are. That's, that's modern life, isn't it? Thank you very much, and it's goodbye for me. Uh, Peter Rayborn, and it's still raining in a very sodden Wiltshire. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller, where it's getting darker and darker in south-east London. <laughs>